first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What makes a drug a drug? I'm Sean Ailing, and I write for Vox about politics and philosophy. And I'm your host for Vox Conversations. It's strange to say, but we don't really have a good definition of a drug. You could say a drug is any substance that transforms our experience of the world. But food does that too. So what's the difference? It turns out the difference is pretty arbitrary, at least in this country. Drugs are whatever the government says they are. And for a long time, the government has classified drugs in a very dishonest and cynical way. We call this insanity the drug war. But here's the good news. The drug war is dying. You can see it in the marijuana legalization movement, and you can see it in the so-called psychedelic renaissance. So the country will have to think seriously about what comes next. What kind of cultural infrastructure should we build? Michael Pollan is perhaps best known for his 2018 book, How to Change Your Mind. More than any other book in recent memory, Pollan's helped vault psychedelics into the mainstream. And it remains one of the best explorations of the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. Pollan's got a new one out called This Is Your Mind on Plants. This one is about psychedelics too, but it's a much broader look at our all-too-human obsession with psychoactive plants. And not just hallucinogens, but also caffeine and opium. So we talk about that. And we explore what we can learn from other cultures about how to use psychedelics and why he thinks these plants can help reshape our broken relationship with the natural world. Michael Pollan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. I want to start with a deceptively simple question, which is, what is a drug? Yeah, it's uh, only deceptively simple because it's hard to say. I, I looked at that question. I mean, I, I think of it as something we ingest that changes us in some ways. But of course, you could say that about a lot of foods also. You could say that about sugar. You could say that about chicken soup. So I went looking at the Food and Drug Administration, who you would think would have nailed this down a long time ago. But they basically decided, they, they describe a drug as essentially an item that is not food that is called a drug by the FDA. <laughs> so okay. So it's what the FDA says a drug is. That's so weird, right? I mean, I guess in both cases, you ingest a substance that changes you, changes how you feel, changes your chemistry, changes your body even. And it's still not clear to me what makes a food food and what makes drugs 
drugs? Yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of cases right on the edge. I mean, sugar is a great example. You know, if you've, if you've got kids and you watch how they respond to sugar, there's no question it's a drug. But then what about a placebo? I mean, that is something you ingest that changes you, but it's, it's not a drug in the pharmacopoeia. So it's kind of a mess. And it's our first indication that there's something very arbitrary about illicit versus licit drugs. I mean, in that case, an illicit drug is whatever the government has scheduled, you know, listed as their list of drugs that can be abused. Well, I've always thought of drugs as collapsing in one of two categories. And I'll just throw this half-baked idea at you and you can respond however you like. There are drugs that wake you up and drugs that put you to sleep. And I don't mean that in the kind of conventional upper and downer sense. I mean, there are drugs that make you more live more connected, more aware. And there are drugs where the point is to be less alive. The point is to change how you feel on the inside so that you don't have to deal with what's happening on the outside. Is that too simplistic uh, in terms of, of how to think about this? No, I think there's some value in that, but there are cases of the same drug doing both those things. I mean, alcohol is a very good example. Mm. At a low dose, it could have that effect of making you feel more alive, more uh, fluid, more connected. And then at a high dose, you're just kind of medicating yourself into oblivion. Cannabis too, I think you could say that about. So all of which just points to the fact that, you know, these categories that Timothy Leary came up with, set and setting, are really important in the case of all drugs. And that the chemistry, understanding the chemistry takes you only so far. Your expectations, your environment, your intentions, and the dose, all these things can dramatically affect what happens. So I think we have to realize that there are chemical hooks in, in drugs, but there's so much else going on. Andrew Weil, in, in a wonderful book he wrote 50 years ago now uh, called The Natural Mind, he describes drugs as active placebos. In other words, they're doing something but a lot of what they're doing is constructed by us. Why is it that, at least in your opinion, human beings have always been so determined and so interested in changing their own consciousness? I mean, what is it about ordinary or banal states of consciousness that bore us or, or scare <laughs> us or, or, or you know, limit us in some hard-to-describe way? Yeah, you know, this has been a question I have been interested in for a very long time, as long as I've been writing about the relationship of plants and people, which has concerned me since my first book in 1991. I think it's very curious that uh, it appears to be a universal desire of our species, and not only our species, to change consciousness, that we're not satisfied with everyday normal consciousness. Um, and you alluded to one reason, I think boredom. I think that people seek novelty and they seek novelty in states of mind as well as places and activities. Um, so that's one. The relief of pain is another, and that's one of the most important things we've used drug for. I mean, for most of the history of, of what we now call medicine, pain relief was about all you could get out of it. And opium was the great, you know, the greatest drug in the pharmacopoeia because it could lift pain. So that's another important thing. And other drugs whether they act directly on pain or not, distract you from pain. And that's often just as good. I mean, cannabis works that way for some people. The, the experience of pain isn't really diminished, but 
you don't give a shit at certain doses. But I think that there are more interesting reasons that we use drugs. And one is that the kind of novelty they contribute is useful to us as a species. The way I describe it in the book is that they're mutagens, in a sense, in the cultural sphere. In the same way that mutations in DNA lead to variation and every now and then produce useful traits that then give an advantage to the individuals or the species that acquired them. In the realm of culture, where we're talking about memes rather than genes, at least in Richard Dawkins' formulation, drugs have a similar mutating effect on cultural memes. They give people ideas. They plant metaphors, images, all these things that feed into cultural evolution uh, in a way similar to the way uh, mutation and variation feed into biological evolution. You know, that's pretty speculative. I don't know that I could prove it scientifically, but I, I think that's part of what's going on. The other important things that drugs do is increase sociality. Um, drugs like alcohol at, at uh, mild doses make people more fluid socially, more interested in other people. Uh, MDMA does this too. And those drugs, you know, probably like religion and other activities, human activities, made us more sociable creatures. And that was very important to our success as a species. We're very social creatures and we use drugs to uh, increase our comfort in uh, social environments, which, you know, probably led to reproductive edges for the people who were most social. So I think that they've been really important tools uh, throughout human history. And during this last 50 years of the drug war, we've kind of lost track of that. You know, we've really simplified our view of drugs into good and evil. We've tended to moralize them. And we've tended to lose track of the fact that something that could be dangerous used in a certain way could also be incredibly helpful in another way. The Greeks uh, really, you know, got it with their word for drugs. They called them pharmakon. And that could mean both a blessing and a curse, depending on the context. And, and context is everything when you're when it comes to drugs. They also, the third meaning of pharmacon, which I think is really interesting and telling, is scapegoat. So the drug was something you could blame things on. And God knows we've done that. Yeah, I'm guilty there. Um, I cannot let this pass without at least asking, what other animals get high? <laughs> you said we're not the only creature that likes to deliberately alter our consciousness. So what other creatures are out there? I'm getting blazed. Well, start with cats. Anyone who has a cat who's ever administered catnip to um, knows that they definitely get high. There are reports of dogs seeking out psilocybin mushrooms and getting high. Really? Yeah. There is a lot of reports of elephants really liking alcohol and um, attacking stills and even finding like rotten fruit, you know, which starts fermenting, of course, turns to alcohol pretty quickly and consuming that. Animals too like to uh, get high. I, I used to have a cat uh, named Frank who would follow me. I had a fenced in vegetable garden and every evening Frank would follow me into the garden. And every evening he'd look up at me expectantly and I know what he wanted. He wanted me to show him where the catnip was. And what was really curious was that he had to be reminded every single day where this was. And the reason was that the catnip got him so high that he forgot where he'd seen it, which it occurred to me might be precisely the catnip strategy. If 
something is going to eat you, it's very useful to produce a chemical that makes that pest forget where you are or forget what he's doing. Frank helped me understand that. You know, I mean, most, most drugs are produced by plants, right? I mean, they're the great neurochemists. And um, I've always wondered why they didn't simply produce poisons that one bite kills you. But evolutionary theory teaches why that would be a bad idea, uh, because it would select very quickly for resistant members of the population, for that rare cat or insect that can survive, has, has a mutation allowing him or her not to die when they eat that thing. So much better strategy to preserve the power of your pesticide to merely confuse or ruin the appetite of the pest. And that's very useful if you're a plant that wants to survive. Your book orbits around these, you know, three plants or, or drugs, whatever you want to call them, you know, opium, caffeine, and, and mescaline. I'm curious why these three? Well, a couple of reasons. Some, you know, I can make seem very systematic, like I wanted to do an upper, a downer, and an outer, as I, as I refer to the psychedelics. So they're, they're representative of some big categories of drugs. Um, the other is that I'd had a history with them all, and so was interested in talking about it. In the case of opium, that goes back to a summer in 1996, where I planted opium in my garden, hoping to harvest it, and got tangled up in a, a quiet DEA campaign to suppress amateur opium growers, even though it's pretty easy to do. And I wanted to revisit that story. I had, I had actually published that story or part of it in Harper's Magazine in 1997 in a piece called Opium Made Easy. And um, I, I did that. At the time, I was writing these columns on what was happening in my garden. And uh, somebody had sent me an underground press book called Opium for the Masses. And I thought, oh, how cool. I can grow my own opium. And it was all legal up until the point where you slit the poppy head. So I thought this would be a cute column to write. And as a gardener, I'm always curious, you know, can I do this? But it turned out that uh, that book had drawn the attention of the DEA and the author of it had been busted uh, and was busted during the same summer I was growing these poppies with his help and advice. I was interviewing him. And uh, this weird front in the drug war opened up in front of me where the DEA was trying to persuade seed sellers and nurseries not to sell opium poppies. The Papaverse somniferum is the official name, even though they're perfectly legal. And these seeds are available widely. They're the same seeds on a poppy seed bagel or that you would find, you know, in the spice aisle of, of your supermarket. Anyway, he, uh, without going into the whole story, I, I suddenly find myself in this situation where I'm growing this narcotic in my garden. The police presumably have the record of my communication with this person they've thrown in jail. But you see, if you grow Papaver somniferum with the intent of making a narcotic, it is a very serious violation of the federal drug laws, punishable by a fine of from five to 20 years. So how do you prove intent? Well, ownership of this book, and in his case, authorship of this book. So they had really come after him hard, and uh, I thought I was next. So I had a very, uh, had a summer of fear and paranoia, uh, waiting for my poppies to, <laughs> to ripen. You're such a badass, Michael. But the very summer that I was growing opium in my garden and getting tangled up in this weird front in the drug war... Purdue Pharma was introducing OxyContin, mm. which was legal. FDA approved 
And this was an opiate that supposedly was non-addictive and supposedly was safer than previous forms, uh, something that the manufacturers knew very well was not the case, and led to what we now call the opioid crisis. And there were like 5,000 opiate addicts in 1996 or 7, and, and now there are hundreds of thousands of them, thanks to the legal marketing of opiates by companies like Purdue Pharma. So all this was going on. I mean, that the, the DEA was looking at exactly the wrong problem in 1997, 1996. So I thought that that, you know, was an interesting parable of the drug war. You know, where was the real problem? Where was the public, you know, supposedly we fought this war because there was this giant public health problem around drugs. And in fact, there wasn't back then. But with the help of legal opiates, we created one. The most incontestable right we have, in my opinion, is the right to experiment with our own consciousness, with our own mind. And yet the state is extremely interested in policing how and whether we do this. Why is that? I think because the state at various times regards drug use as a tremendous threat. You know, there are certain drugs that kind of contribute to the smooth working of society. I mean, think of coffee, um, caffeine, which I write about also in the book. There were a few skirmishes when coffee first showed up in Europe and King Charles wanted to ban it. Uh, briefly, because he didn't like how all the political conversation going on in the coffee houses. He was he felt threatened. He thought it was a seditious beverage, but that didn't work. Um, it was already too popular. He backed down. In general, though, a drug like caffeine is making us better workers, more focused, less drunk. It's a great drug for capitalism. Capitalism loves caffeine, and as well it should. And and you need no better proof of that than the, the existence of the coffee break as an institution. I mean, think of it. Here is a case where your employer gives you a drug free of charge and then gives you paid time in which to enjoy it. That's all you need to know about like who's benefiting from caffeine. But then you have something like LSD or psilocybin, um, which the government took a very strong interest, even though, you know, those drugs are virtually non-toxic and non-addictive. They're not drugs of abuse, as the government defines that. But they were disruptive to society in the 60s. And President Nixon believed that the reason young boys weren't willing to go to Vietnam was because of drugs and specifically because of LSD. And he may have been right. It may have contributed to their willingness to defy authority. I mean, these are substances that, taken in the right context, do encourage independent thinking of various kinds. So LSD was seen as very threatening, and parents thought it was threatening. I mean, here here was a rite of passage, the acid trip, that, unlike most rites of passage, didn't fold the person more tightly into society. It, it had the opposite effect. It, it made this young person um, feel that they were in a whole other culture and wanted to dress differently, talk differently, have different mores. And we called it the generation gap. And you had this very interesting and historically pretty novel split in the values of two different generations. And, and that may well have been, uh, at least in part, the result of widespread use of LSD and psilocybin on the part of the young. So when um, Nixon came after, you know, decided to launch the drug war, he did it because he thought these drugs were threatening his political agenda. Uh, And he may well have been right. It's interesting. One way you can determine 
what a society values is to look at the drugs it condones and the drugs it condemns. As you point out, mm. the drugs we call illicit are basically whatever the government says is bad. And it's awfully revealing that in our culture, bourbon and, and, and caffeine and opioids are good, but somehow mescaline or DMT or psilocybin are bad. Yeah, but it's interesting that those same chemicals uh, are good in other cultures in another context. So, for example, one of the reasons I was so interested in writing about mescaline is that it is a psychedelic like LSD, but the way it's used in the Native American church, where it's a legal sacrament, they have the legal right to use it, is the most conservative way imaginable. It is used to enforce social cohesion and um, help heal trauma as a group, help deal with alcoholism. It's a, this very conservative moral model of psychedelic use. That told me that it doesn't necessarily have to be, that there's nothing inherent in a psychedelic that makes it disruptive. Well, that's an important point, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of people because we've mm. sort of accepted the idea that these drugs are inherently very dangerous or destabilizing. But the fact that they fulfill the opposite function in these other cultures is not very well understood or known. So can you say a bit about how that works? I mean, in these in these communities, how is it that these same sorts of drugs are seen as tools in reinforcing social bonds and mores as opposed to drugs that explode them? Well, you know, the indigenous use of psychedelics goes back at least 6,000 years. That's the oldest evidence we have for the use of, of mescaline in the form of peyote, the cactus that produces mescaline. There's a couple different cacti that produce it. But there may be psychedelic use before that. So these cultures have had a lot of time to experiment with these drugs and figure out what they're good for. And in most of them, what appears to be the application is in a social context so that, you know, in traditional cultures, you don't use a psychedelic alone. Occasionally, the shaman might use it alone to get some information or perform some divination or something. But basically, they're used in a group setting. There's always an elder involved, sometimes called a shaman or medicine carrier or curandera. They're always approached with uh, great solemnity, ritual, which I think is incredibly important in drug use, and that there is some intention. There's a reason you're doing it. It's not casual in any way. So you're not doing it for thrills. You're not doing it for self-exploration. You're doing it for this communal healing or um, practice of religion. And that's still the way a lot of psychedelics are used in other cultures. And it seems to contribute more to social cohesion than the opposite. So why didn't that happen in our culture? Well, it might have. I mean, one of the most striking things about the psychedelics is when they show up in the West, beginning with Albert Hoffman's discovery of uh, LSD, they're truly novelties. And we didn't really look to traditional cultures to understand them probably out of condescension. But LSD did come out of a lab in Switzerland. And basically, these are powerful substances that arrived without an instruction manual. And so we just started that process of trial and error that other cultures may have gone through 10,000 years ago. Uh, we began in the 50s and 60s. And uh, there was a little bit of research into the potential as a medicine, but there's a lot more use as a rite of passage, as a, something that was simply fun, 
a way to prank your friends, you know, by dosing them uh, without their knowledge, which now strikes us as borderline cruel. And so we didn't know how to use them. And we, we tried a lot of different things. And some of them were disastrous and people got into serious trouble. I don't think we should minimize that. Uh, you know, there were some suicides. There were certainly accidents and uh, stupid things happened. And the CIA got people into trouble on them also because they were doing research. So this was all, I, I think, uh, you know, a very sloppy and expensive R&D program that is now with this renaissance of psychedelic research is leading to a new way to use these drugs in a way that I think the government will actually support pretty soon, you know, representing a big turnaround and that the research going on into the therapeutic uses of psychedelics, which has been very promising. And I detail in my last book, How to Change Your Mind, but a lot has happened since then. And that we may change our understanding of psychedelics from something that disrupts our society and is a threat to the powers that be and the order that prevails to something that helps smooth the operation of society. Because right now, mental health difficulty is what's disrupting our society. You know, we have these tremendous rates of, of depression and anxiety and suicide and addiction. And now we're starting to see that these psychedelics might actually help people cope with that and actually be a, a, a very important treatment for all those ailments and several others, OCD, anorexia. So we may see in our lifetime a complete 180 in the government's feelings about psychedelics. And capitalism is now embracing psychedelics. Um, there's an investment boom going on with these companies that want to bring them to market as a, as a treatment for mental health. Yeah, we'll circle back to that because I think that's problematic on, on a few fronts, but mm -hmm. you, you interviewed a man uh, that you quoted in the book. I think he was a, a leader in the Navajo church. And, and he had said to you that the peyote ceremonies did more, quote, more to heal the wounds of genocide, colonialism, and alcoholism than anything else. That's a hell of a statement. What did he mean? Well, Peyoteism, as it's called, this is the use of peyote, the mescaline-producing cactus in the Native American church, comes along at a time when Native Americans were on the verge, their culture was on the verge of annihilation back in the 1870s, 1880s. The Plains Indians were all being forced onto reservations, mostly in Oklahoma. People who had led itinerant lives following the bison and the seasons were forced to uh, settle down and, and begin in a completely new lifestyle. Many different Indian tribes were forced into very close proximity, uh, which was difficult because they weren't, some of them saw one another as enemies. I mean, there's a lot of competition between tribes. And the U.S. government at that point had an explicit policy about destroying Indian culture. And they were going to do it by taking young Indians and putting them into boarding schools. After cutting their hair and, and dressing them up as little Westerners, they were out to destroy Indian culture. And Native Americans reacted in one of two ways. There were two very interesting religious movements that began in the 1880s at this moment of maximum peril. Um, one was the ghost dance, which was a, um, a religion built around a ceremony, an all-night dance that became kind of a trance. And uh, it was built around some uh, an Indian's vision that the white man would disappear. It was a dream and that Indian culture could be restored again. 
And this was, these ghost dances were conducted in public and really freaked out the authorities. And they tried to suppress it. And eventually they massacred uh, people who were leading the ghost dance. And then there was this other movement. Again, it was simultaneous. And that was the church, the Native American church. And this movement used a psychedelic peyote. It took place inside teepees. It had a kind of veneer of Christianity to it. There'd be a Bible around and people would talk about seeing Jesus, but that was really just to fool the authorities, I think. And uh, instead of promising a revolution and a removal of the white man that was never going to happen, it taught the people who participated how to adjust to their new life, how to bear it, how to deal with the problems of of trauma and alcoholism, which as soon as Indians got onto the uh, reservation became a huge problem. It was an accommodationist strategy in a way. It was therapeutic. I mean, you know, some people say that therapy is a way to take misfits and adjust them to society. And uh, you could argue that that, you know, was part of what was going on with peyoteism. It's funny, it was less threatening to the government, although at various times the government did try to crush peyoteism. And it wasn't until 1994 that Native Americans got the right to use their sacrament of peyote. But it was really from everyone I've interviewed, and I interviewed quite a few Native Americans and did a lot of reading in this area, it was remarkably constructive and helpful in allowing Native Americans to adjust to their lot. And it still is. I mean, it's still, you know, the Native American church, no one knows exactly how big it is, but it's somewhere like 400,000 members across dozens of different tribes. It's spread to most parts of the country is a very important therapeutic tool. People have peyote meetings when they're dealing with an addiction, when they're dealing with a spousal abuse or divorce. There's always a purpose to that peyote meeting. It could be something like someone's going off to war or someone's about to get married. They'll have a peyote meeting for that too. But all these social rituals take place in the context of these peyote meetings, which you know some Westerners have, have witnessed. I, I did not get to, largely because of COVID, I think. But they're not fun. They're not Dionysian in any way. They're much more Apollonian. I mean, they're very carefully prescribed. Everybody has a very specific role. You sit in a certain place. You sit in a certain position. You stare at the fire the whole time in this uh, tent. And uh, they're very rigorous ceremonies. But the Indians I interview say that they've been helping deal with the challenges of colonialism and dispossession and genocide. Well, I mean, this touches on something that you don't run away from in the book, right? This issue of sustainability and appropriation. And as you just said, you were you were looking into participating in one of these ceremonies, but for a variety of reasons, COVID among them, it didn't happen. But you did encounter a bit of resistance along along the way that I think, in an interesting way, draws out some of these tensions and and contradictions in, in this space right now. Can you just Talk about some of the resistance there and, and what it looked like. Yeah, I was really surprised. I started interviewing Native Americans and people didn't want to talk to me about it all the time. They were really afraid that this drug and this way of using it and its power was going to be stolen. And of course, so much has been stolen from American Indians that it's hard to blame them. But I remember interviewing Steve Benali, who was a Diné or Navajo leader. Uh, and he'd been head of the Native American church. And I said, I'm, I'm really curious to know what, what peyoteism has done for your people. 
And he just came right back as like, why should I tell you? And I was like, I was kind of taken aback. Um, and he said, you know, you were part of a long line of discoverers. He called me a discoverer, which I guess is a decent word for a journalist. And that has not worked out well for us. You know, the discoverers have taken things from us. So there was some secrecy about it because I was asking for examples of how people had been helped by this. And uh, he wouldn't give me any on the record. He gave me a couple off the record that were pretty amazing. But um, peyote only grows in this narrow band along the Rio Grande River outside of Laredo. And it's called the peyote gardens. There's more of it on the Mexican side than the U.S. side. And as demand for peyote has soared, there's real concern that there won't be enough to keep this church going, keep it healthy. So there's a conservation effort underway. To me, it argued for non-Native people leaving it alone. This is a really important tool for Native Americans to deal with what are, you know, tremendous social problems that are our fault. And that for us to compete with them for this precious good seems to me deeply unfair. And, uh, and so I concluded that the best way to honor peyote was to leave it alone. And if you're interested in the experience of mescaline, there are other cactuses which are more common and easy to grow, uh, San Pedro being one, also called Wachuma. Whereas peyote takes 15 years to get from a seed to a little button that you can eat, Wachuma grows very quickly and grows in all sorts of places. And people don't know about it, but if you're interested in trying mescaline, that's, that's what I'd recommend. Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, if it seems like psychedelics are a fad in the U.S. these days, you're not alone. But as Michael Pollan explains, those trying to profit from the movement are likely to face some challenges. That's after the break. Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. You know, the thing is, it's just so clear to me that there's a lot of activity and energy in this space, but no one really knows how to navigate this. You know, I mean, I started reporting on psychedelics a few years ago and mm -hmm. still to this day, it seems like every 10 minutes I'm getting an email from some, you know, venture startup that's, you know, uh, concocting some new company that's trying to get in, you know, and make money in the space of, of, you know, mental health and therapy and, and psychedelic treatments one of the people you interviewed in the book had said, you know, if there's money to be made from peyote, nothing will stand in the way. Yeah. And goddamn, Michael, if that's not spot on, and you can replace peyote with any of these, these chemicals and it still holds. And that's, that's really the problem right now with psychedelics at scale. 
right? I mean, it's just not, there's not a good answer for this, but we're barreling ahead anyway, it seems. Yeah, um, we are. I mean, there's a gold rush now. You know, there were a couple of very successful IPOs of companies that want to bring psychedelics to market. As yet, there is not one that's working with mescaline, although there's one that's out there raising money. It hasn't had an IPO yet. And that they want to see whether they can use mescaline to treat alcoholism in the ways that Native Americans have. Now, they're talking about synthetic mescaline. And you can argue whether that represents appropriation or not. There are definitely Native Americans who think even if you're synthesizing mescaline, that is a taking. I'm not sure I agree with that. But they're concerned that uh, there will be extractions from peyote. I mean, it may be that there are other things in peyote besides mescaline. You know, it's a very Western attitude that there's the active ingredient and everything else is, you know, inert. But in fact, with psychedelics like psilocybin and mescaline, there's a bunch of alkaloids. I think there are 50 in peyote. And maybe some of the others are having an effect in maybe they'll go after those at some point. So I I understand the fear and that there is a land grab going on and efforts to patent things that grow in nature. I mean, there's a lot of efforts to patent psilocybin, even though it's been produced by mushrooms for millennia. Whether that'll succeed or not, I don't know, but it's troubling. I think that we need to recognize the indigenous roots of this knowledge that we're playing with and honor it in some ways by helping with conservation by recognizing the role of indigenous peoples in psychedelic therapy, what we call psychedelic therapy. They call it, of course, medicine. They don't like the word psychedelic, and I don't blame them. It's, it's, you know, it's a Western uh, coinage from the 50s. But I don't know what you do about it. This is how capitalism works. I mean, I, I take some comfort in the fact that as much as Compass Pathways or Atai, these big companies in the space, want to lock up psilocybin, It'll still be easy to grow. It will, you know, it will defeat them that people will still have access to it. But, you know, as we medicalize these substances, they will, without doubt, become controlled to some extent. But I I don't think they can be completely controlled. I, I think they have a fundamental wildness about them, which is the fact that we can all grow them in our gardens. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, capitalism is a sledgehammer and it's, you know, it's, I think once this, uh, Pandora's box gets gets flipped open. Uh, I'm not sure there's any way to contain or steer or manage it. And one of the reasons this thing is moving ahead at full speed is because the drug war is ending. Right? It's dying a very slow death, but it is dying. And you know that begs a question you, you touch on in, in the book, and I, I know it's something you're going to be writing about in the future, which is, you know, what comes next? What is what does the drug piece look like? You know, how do we fold these chemicals into our society? You know, what are the risks? What kind of, what kind of cult- cultural infrastructure do we need to build now in order to manage this thing? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, what does the piece look like after the drug war? I don't have the answers, but I have some glimmers of answers. I think that In a way, the drug war made things easy because we didn't have to have this conversation. It was like either, you know, the drug was illegal or it was legal. And uh, we let the government decide many of these questions for us. They'll revert to individuals and culture when the drug war ends. In other words, we'll have to figure out how to use these substances safely. And culture, you know, has a lot of 
a lot of wisdom in it and is in some ways more powerful than law and politics. So with regard to the psychedelics, we can see kind of three paths to normalization opening up. One is the medical path. This is FDA approval of presumably psilocybin and MDMA in the next few years. And then you'll be able to, you know, get a prescription from a from a doctor, but it'll probably be approved with regulations governing, uh, you know, who can administer it under what circumstances. So it's not like you're going to get a prescription for psilocybin that you can take to CVS. They'll probably approve a whole protocol or regime, a, co a container for the experience, which will involve, you know, having a guide with you, preparing you carefully, sitting with you during the experience, and then afterwards helping you interpret it in what's called integration. So I think that is going to happen, and that will be how it works. And, and exactly where it happens isn't clear. There'll probably be uh, retreat centers um, that'll look a lot like spas, and they'll be expensive like spas. There's a company called Field Trip Ventures, which is building these spas right now, these clinics in cities across America. They're, they're doing it with ketamine, which is already legal and is sort of like a psychedelic. And that's kind of the stalking horse for psilocybin as far as they're concerned. But I think it costs like $5,000 for a session. So that's not going to be that accessible. Big question whether insurance will cover it, and that'll have to do with whether it works better than antidepressants, which I think will be the case, but also whether it's cheaper. And that is going to be a hard one because you need so much support. You need many hours of therapy along with the single dose or double dose. Um, so that's one path. The other path, interestingly, was charted by Native Americans, and that's the religious path. I don't know that people realize, uh, but that not only do Native Americans have the right to use peyote in their ceremonies, but there are two ayahuasca churches uh, that have won that right in America to administer ayahuasca as their sacrament. And there are new psychedelic churches popping up now all over the place. Uh, psychedelic churches, you know, around psilocybin, uh, around LSD, around ayahuasca. And people are just kind of getting together and calling it a church. And how real this is or not remains to be seen. I think a lot of people are sincere and there is a lot of ritual around their use of these drugs. But what is interesting to me is that the jurisprudence of this Supreme Court around religious freedom is going to make it very hard for them to reject these churches. You know, if Hobby Lobby, a corporation, has the right to essentially supersede federal regulations and laws if they conflict with their religious beliefs, well, the drug laws are going to fall too in, in this context. I think it's going to be like an exploding cigar, you know, in front of Sam Alito or, or, or John Roberts when the Church of Lysergic Acid comes before the Supreme Court. They're going to be hard-pressed given the precedents that they've laid down. Well, if nothing else, the legal acrobatics will be a sight to behold. Oh, it's going to be a great fight. And there already is apparently this cadre of lawyers, and they call themselves psychedelic lawyers, centered around Boulder, Colorado, apparently. Of course. That is willing and able to help these churches advance through the courts and reach the Supreme Court if necessary. They have to get busted first. They're looking for the right case. So that may be a second path where people will have access to psychedelics. They, you know, join a church where they're administered with a certain amount of ritual. And that strikes me as, you know, a, a completely sane way to uh, to do it. I'm sure some of these churches are going to be, you know, phony as a $3 bill. 
But a lot of them are very sincere and they will be developing the kinds of rituals and intentions that will contribute to a safe use of psychedelics. At least that's my hope. So that's a second path. And then this third path is, is the one that's least well-defined, and that's healthy people who want to use psychedelics and don't buy into the whole spiritual you know, angle. Right. You know, really secular people who, who feel they want to do it for self-exploration or for personal growth in, in, in some ways. And how will they be able to use it? I tend to think they will be able to use it legally under the rubric of the medical model in that in the same way many of us seek psychotherapy who do not have DSM diagnoses of mental illness, but nevertheless find it really useful to talk to a therapist and you know to deal with problems in their relationships or in their careers or just general unhappiness. There will be places you'll be able to go where a presiding MD will write the prescription and, you know, guides will, will guide you through the experience. And then, of course, they'll, you know, illicit use will continue and I'm assuming will not be a priority for law enforcement. I mean, in a way, it isn't already. Psychedelics do not get the kind of attention that other drugs do from law enforcement, which I think has something to do with the fact that they're used mostly by affluent white people so far who have not been the target of the drug war. Okay, we're going to take just one more short break, but when we come back, has writing about psychedelics changed Michael Pollan? Has it made him an evangelist? I'll ask him after the break. You may not love this language, but you know I feel like you're becoming a bit of an evangelist on this particular issue, right? It, it seems to me like the experiences you had writing the last book changed you, and it, it changed how you relate to your own mind and, and to the world. And the fact that you followed it up with this book seems like an affirmation of that. And you know, it's kind of a glib question to ask if you think psychedelics in particular can you know, save us. But I don't think it's glib to ask if you think a psychedelic renaissance can be genuinely transformative or at least restorative in some deep, profound sense for our culture. Well, I do think, and I did learn this from my experience, but not only my experience, from the research as well, which is, you know, is panning out the kind of research that was just getting started when I wrote How to Change Your Mind and published it three years ago that I do think they have a contribution to make to relieve human suffering. You know, the tools we have now to address things like depression are really crappy. Uh, we have SSRIs, which uh, antidepressants, which people don't like taking, that are addictive for all intents and purposes. They're very hard to get off. They impair sexual function. They put weight on. People hate taking them uh, for long periods of time. And they don't actually address the cause of depression or OCD, which they're also used for, or anxiety. They, you know, in some people relieve symptoms, but not many people. It's, it's amazing, you know, that in the drug trials that got them approved, SSRIs did two or three points, percentage points better than placebo. And they're less effective now than when they were first introduced, which is often a phenomenon with new drugs. They do better at the beginning 
So the mental health establishment is in desperate need of new tools. And along comes psychedelics, psilocybin, MDMA, and they appear, based on the research we've seen, to offer certain advantages um, and actually do address causes in the case of many mental illnesses. So if that's being an evangelist, I mean, that's not a fair word to use, I guess, just because it implies blind faith uh, rather than empirical evidence. And there's a lot of empirical evidence. But there's a whole other level of hope around psychedelics that I'm much more skeptical of. And this is that they can improve society. You know, if a lot of people take them, that we'll be better people, we'll feel more connected, we'll feel more compassionate, we'll feel more part of nature. And there's been some research that I don't think is very strong that suggests these things, that there are changes in social attitudes. But the kinds of people who participate in these studies are, are self-selected. They're people open to taking psychedelics. And, you know, will they work as well on, you know, the Koch brothers, on Trump supporters? And the people they've been giving to, they, they lowered people's tolerance for authoritarianism. That seems like something really could be valuable. But would that be true if you gave them to a Trump supporter? I'm not so sure. I mean, given the importance of context of set and setting, they could take people in a very different direction. So about that, I have a lot of skepticism. I think it's a really interesting area for research to figure out whether changes in social attitudes flows from this. I mean, you could argue that they did in the 60s. Um, they did change society. But the historical contingencies involved, you know, as to who was taking them, you know, what class of people, what their predilections already were. My, my, my sense is they take whatever predilections you have and make them more salient, not that they change them radically. But this is an area where, you know, we really don't know. But we do know that for some individuals and many of the people in these trials, they have been transformative. And for me, I found them very valuable, uh, that I've learned a lot from them. And I've seen in many people close to me how they can help address all sorts of life problems. So many of our problems as individuals stem from various forms of habitual thinking. You know, we get stuck in ruts, whether it's rumination about self-worth or things to be afraid of, or if it's destructive habits of behavior like drug addiction, we're creatures of habit and habits are very useful in some ways. You know, they, they make us more efficient because we don't have to run a new algorithms every time we confront a situation. But on the other side, they kind of blind us to reality and to life and dull us in various ways and, and get us into trouble. And these appear to be powerful tools for breaking habits. And I think that's incredibly valuable. A theme in your last book that is present in this one is our increasing separation from nature. Mm. I would call this maybe the most consequential fact of the post-industrial world. I mean, I really do think this will be the end of our civilization. I really do. And, and being separated from the natural world isn't by itself suicidal, but the form of life that springs from that separation, the, the blindnesses and the excesses. And carelessness. And the carelessness and the abuses. That will be the end of us. Am I being an annoying doom and gloom <laughs> asshole? Or, or do, do you see it? Do you see it that way? Look, all my writing has been about bringing nature back into people's lives and, and making them realize their implication in the natural world and how 
you know, plants affect us as much as we affect them. So that reconnection is like a big part of my life project and something I try to work on in my own life as a gardener, especially. I think our distance from nature and disconnection from nature, and I see it even, you know, more pronounced in in younger generations who've grown up with social media in a way that I didn't. Yeah, I think it's an enormous threat. And I'm really interested in any research to see whether psychedelics helps with that. I do think that they're a very interesting antidote to, you know, our mediated lives and, you know, mm-hmm. with our addiction to our phones and social media and, and, and all the, everything we've allowed to, to come between us, all the screens, literal and figurative that stand between us and the natural world. A psychedelic takes you off screens. Your phone is not going to be part of it, of the experience. And it is very much about reconnecting to the body, to the contents of the mind, to your memories, and to nature. And, you know, I had very profound experiences in nature on some of my psychedelic experiences. But again, I was already well disposed as a gardener to love my plants. What I wasn't ready for is to have my plants kind of return my gaze in the garden and and kind of announce themselves to me in a way they never had before as agents with their own perspective and subjectivity. I know this sounds absolutely crazy, but um, my plants were more alive than they'd ever been. They had their own interests. They were... And they were, you know, incredibly well disposed to me. I was happy to discover, but they were disposed. <laughs> you can't and, take psychedelics and try to explain them without sounding like, you know, a fucking lunatic. idiot. Yeah, so don't... Look, yeah. I've been struggling with this for several years now. But look, I, I just want to add to what you were saying because I, I really don't think we appreciate just how radical the role of technology has become in our world. I mean, we think of technology as tools, but it's much more than that. I mean, it's a way of life and it's reshaped our orientation to the natural world, which we now regard as just another tool, something to be mastered and utilized. We don't have technology. Technology has us or the spirit of technology has us. And I'm not saying I want to live in some pre-technological world. That's not even possible or desirable, but we need something that can rupture this relationship, something that can reconnect us with the physical world. And, psychedelic plants are a technology for doing that. And I think that's part of the reason that they've had this resurgence of interest. I don't think it's a coincidence that it comes along at the same time that we've entered into this technosphere, you know, which is, by the way, really recent, you know? I mean, you know, the iPhone is, what, 2008? It's amazing how fast it's changed our world and how much we take it for granted and how dependent we are. And I do think psychedelics is a response to that. And it's it's really interesting that they're of such interest to the people who built that world, you know, to founders at Facebook. And I'm not talking about Mark Zuckerberg, but other founders at Facebook who are a big part of psychedelic philanthropy. And, and, um, and there are lots of people out here in Silicon Valley who are having psychedelic experiences and, and working with guides. And they're more deeply involved in that world than anybody else. And I think Part of them has a revulsion about it, too, even as it's made them all their money. So, yeah, I think an antidote to this is much needed, and I think psychedelics may be part of that. I don't know exactly how that works or how you would demonstrate that, but there is something wonderful 
about turning away from that technology over the course of a day where you're using a psychedelic and turning back to your own mind because that's what's been hijacked right i mean we don't we don't daydream anymore you know when we're online at the bank we look at our phone we fill that time up that was a very interesting time where we just kind of mind wandered or looked at the people around us or dealt with the fact that we were unoccupied and psychedelics does kind of uh, short circuit their command of our attention it's a powerful alternative center of gravity for your attention <laughs> really powerful and even though it's just temporary it reminds you about the depths of your own mind or the exquisite beauty of a garden or your connection to other people so it seems to me that that is an important value here and and it might explain why now uh, why are we so interested in psychedelics now it's an interesting question and look i share your skepticism that you know dosing the world will obliterate all of our our problems but you know i'll also say and and i annoy some of my more atheistic materialist friends and for most of my life i've considered myself both of those things and to some extent still do but i have come to believe in the potential at least of a more meaningful life rooted in the natural world and psychedelic plants are certainly one possible anchor of such a life and you know again i'm not I'm not trying to be an evangelist here but i really do think there's a peculiar species of alienation that plagues modern life and maybe psychedelics aren't the answer maybe they're not even part of the answer but i'm not hearing anything more promising at the moment <laughs> so you know let's 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 go with what we got yeah and you know the fact is that they're not artifacts is worth considering i mean that these are products of nature this is nature talking to us and yes lsd was invented in a lab but it's based on a you know on a chemical produced by a fungus ergot and it's quite extraordinary that the plant world might be offering us an antidote to the to the flight from nature uh these these plants call us back to nature and uh nothing seems more valuable right now um, than something with that power and you know other plants do it too you know in subtler ways with their beauty you know with their usefulness you know these reminders of how much is in nature um, and, and by the way that we're you know in the process of destroying a lot of it and you know but fortunately you know i just wrote a piece about growing psychoactives in your garden and um there's a lot of stuff we can grow legally or illegally if you're willing to I'm, I'm staying on the sunny side of the law these days but um it's amazing what you can grow in your garden michael you've been super generous with your time so thank you so much for this conversation thank you so much for the book uh, it was a really a joy to read and i really appreciated this discussion so thank you so much for what you do oh thank you sean it's always a pleasure to talk to you about these questions Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. 
And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode. A big part of what makes Vox Conversation special is you, our listeners. So we're asking for your help by filling out a short survey. Your responses will help us understand who's listening and what you're looking for. Go to vox.com slash survey. It takes five minutes, tops. That's vox.com slash survey.